I don't, uh, I don't know if you've ever had a moment in your life where you have felt like Nicodemus. As you sit with the reality of those words from that video, if you've felt like something you have built your life on, something that you have worked for, something that you have understood, some thinking that you had chosen to live your life by was suddenly or even quietly just taken away. In fact, these moments or these even seasons of life where things kind of feel like they're shifting, where things seem a little unsteady, where things seem like you can't even remember what it felt like to believe you once believed. There are often not just seasons of doubt or confusion, but rather they are seasons of a more authentic and a more deepening faith. They are often seasons of dependence and seeking. They are seasons of vulnerability and tenderness. They are seasons that are not often talked about in the church. I have a lot of guesses as to why that is. One of the reasons, I think, is churches are often plagued by a certain level of kind of group think. And when individuals start to ask questions or the rhythm of life takes them outside of the pattern of the group, we don't always know how to respond to them. And so at worst, we ostracize them, we question their faith, and we wonder if they were ever really Christians to begin with. Our questions can say a lot about us what we think is important, where we place our value. Our questions shape the perceptions of others around us about what we think about, what we're curious about. Our questions can connect us with others if our seeking leads us into relationship, into conversation, into mutual care for one another and our faith journey. Our questions in life doesn't mean that we're living in kind of a shade of gray, but rather that we are committed to this ever-deepening, ever-expanding, ever-reaching life with Christ. Questions were what brought me to faith at a young age. I remember as a six-year-old young girl sitting in a Sunday school class and hearing the story of Doubting Thomas. Do you remember him? He was the man who was so curious about Jesus, yet he said, I need to see it to believe it. We call that doubting, I call that human, right? And so in the midst of his questions, in the midst of his doubt, Jesus came to him and he said, Thomas, see my hands. See my feet. He said, stop doubting and believe. Here's your proof. Here I am. And when he said this, it didn't mean that his doubts were bad. It didn't mean that his questions were bad. It meant, it didn't mean that his questions showed even a lack of faith. It just meant that Jesus was coming to Thomas and saying, hey Thomas, like, you can put this one to rest. I love you. I'm giving you the proof you need. And I knew as a six-year-old girl with a lot of questions that I loved that Jesus. To be honest, my questions haven't always been well-received. In middle school, I remember asking my youth pastor where dinosaurs fit in the creation story. 
Did they come first? Did they come after? What does that say about the age of our planet? How did the biblical narrative of creation fit into science? And my friends kind of laughed awkwardly at my eagerness. And my youth pastor, bless him, said, we talk about it another time. And we never did. (laughs) My questions in high school became, why did God allow my friend to be killed in a car accident? It became, if God talks a lot about caring for the poor and the oppressed, why do the majority of our church activities take place in a church building? And if we have this building in the middle of this neighborhood, why aren't we doing anything to reach our neighbors? What is a church budget, and how do we decide that? Like, I was a really cool high schooler, you guys. (laughs) These are the questions I was asking. In college, my questions became more global in nature. In seminary, it was, what is this Bible? Can it be true? Can I base my life, my calling, my future on what it says? Does God call me, a woman, to lead in the church and to pastor? As I started ministry in a college environment, it was about creating a space where college students could come with their questions, and not necessarily me answering any of those questions, but to be a safe place where they could explore and wonder who God is and what he had for them. As I became a parent, my questions became more simple. Am I losing my mind? (laughs) Yes. Do I ever sleep? No. Will I ever feel like a human again? Maybe. Thanks, Elaine. That was good. Questions swirl around us. Sometimes they feel like they engage us to deeper levels of life and relationship, and other times they feel threatening to at least throw us off our balance, and at their worst, they create isolation and a desire to just throw in the towel altogether. And there's a lot about Nicodemus here that we're looking at this morning that echoes my own storyline, his desire to ask questions, his earnestness to seek answers, his concern for his own reputation and his standing in the community. Because here's the thing, Nicodemus was a leader. He was not just a teacher, he was, as it is translated, the teacher of Israel. And he was male in a society that kept women marginalized and uplifted patriarchy. He was old, he was an elder in his community, and he had earned this position of respect. He was educated and a person of resource. When people saw Nicodemus, they saw someone who was at the top of his game, at the top of his field, having everything that mattered in that society. But his questions plagued him. They might have kept him up at night and restless during the day. He might have been going through the motions of his work life, but internally there was this battle going on. Who was this man that had been teaching in other regions? Were the miracles that he had been doing, did that really happen? Some were saying that he was even the Messiah. Could this even be true? So Nicodemus made a plan, and because the biblical text speaks in the plural, it's often surmised that Nicodemus came to Jesus with other colleagues, but that Nicodemus was their spokesperson. And so they went to Jesus at night, 
And some commentators, and even in the video we just saw, kind of allude to the fact that maybe he went at night under the cover of darkness because, you know, they didn't know if they wanted to really earn the reputation of seeking Jesus out. They didn't know if he was someone safe that they could align with yet, but at night, they wouldn't be seen. Other commentators suggest, you know, at night it would be natural to go because there was time to have these kinds of conversations. There was time to really talk about things that had mattered. The markets had closed, things had shut down. They were done with their jobs for the day and they could sit and talk about what really mattered. And so Nicodemus found Jesus at the temple, and Jesus had, just in chapter 2, had finished clearing the temple of animals that people could buy to sacrifice. Those shopkeepers were making money, and angrily, Jesus sent them all away and called their businesses a charade and a barrier to all people being welcomed to the place where God can be found. It's after this event that Nicodemus, he finds Jesus, and I just have to wonder, as Nicodemus sees Jesus and is walking towards him, if he expected this conversation to solve everything. Finally, he was going to get to talk to this man that he had heard about. All of his questions would be answered, he would get what he came for, and he would keep going on with his life. Were his expectations like mine when I finally get to ask them to an audience I think is going to point me in the right direction? Internally, I think, just fix it so I can rest. Just fix it so this wrestle will end. And if you could fix it and allow it to be as painless and fit neatly within this system I already have set up so it doesn't mess with anything else and create more problems, that would be great. And as usual, Nicodemus does not get what he bargained for. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. You must be born again, Jesus tells him. I wonder how these words struck Nicodemus the first time he heard them. Nicodemus was a man that wasn't used to people telling him what to do. He wasn't used to people telling him what he needed, quite the opposite. Nicodemus was quite used to and comfortable being the one in charge, the one in control, the one giving to others rather than needing himself. And with one sentence, Jesus is dismantling all of his previous held beliefs, all of his 613 rules, all of his profession, the way that he structured his life, his position in the community. Jesus is pulling that all apart And he is also inviting him into something radically new, the very kingdom of God. And so I want to look at that phrase, born again, for just a minute, because this phrase would not have been new to Nicodemus. He had heard it before, but to hear Jesus say it this time is completely different. Born again was this Jewish idiom And if you were a Jew and you were born into a Jewish family, you were what was called born of the kingdom. But if you were a Gentile and you had been 
intrigued by the Jews and wanting to become a Jew, you would study and then you would go through this ceremony and the Pharisees would look at this person and they would say, look at this brother or this sister, they have been born again. And Jesus, he flips the script and he changes this narrative and says, you know this born again language, you have said this born again language, this thing you think doesn't apply to you is actually all about you. It's you that needs to start over. And with this statement, Jesus is taking apart and causing him to rethink his religious framework, his understanding of who God is, the nature of who the kingdom of God is for and who is included. He is reevaluating everything. Jesus is pulling it apart. He is dismantling it. This is not the conversation Nicodemus came for. Nicodemus says in reply, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now, I read that sentence both like as a theologian, but as a parent as well. So how you read that sentence matters. Um, And I think that um, Nicodemus here is either honestly aghast at the idea of a second birth. He's thinking as a religious leader. He's picturing the laws of nature and biology are being questioned here. You can't like put a baby back into its mother, right? He's thinking this through. But he's also thinking maybe like a middle schooler, like really Jesus? Looks at his colleagues, eye roll, right? They can't enter a second time. (laughs) But Jesus lovingly helps him take his first step in a new direction, and he says this, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, and spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. This is so Jesus right? The first thing they get to is this idea that we are born of the water and of the spirit. And in the moment, as you read that, it might sound like a whole bunch of Christianese, but it really isn't. Because being born of the water is just this other Jewish phrase that expresses the idea that we are each born of our mother, that we are grown in a womb, that we are given flesh and we are birthed of water. But Jesus adds this new birth, this new idea that we are also born of the spirit, a spiritual birth that's given to us by God. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, not only is this a new kind of birth, but guess what? You need it. Sometimes when I think of Nicodemus, I picture a man that has all this scaffolding built around him. You know that scaffolding, that temporary structure that you see outside of buildings with wooden planks and metal poles? Workers use it while they're building or repairing or cleaning a building, but instead of a building, the scaffolding is outside of a person, and Nicodemus has these levels supporting his life, his life of rules, his life of power and education and position and age and gender, and the trouble with scaffolding is that you take out one piece and what happens? Like it all just falls apart. 
And Nicodemus, he needs the scaffolding that's supporting and holding up his life. But it was about rules and transactions rather than a new birth that brings about this transition into relationship. That's what Nicodemus was missing. You must be born again. And Nicodemus is obviously shocked. He says, how can this be? Jesus takes a little dig at him here and reminds him of the scaffolding that's propping up his life. He says, you are Israel's teacher. And you do not understand these things? Right? The kingdom of heaven is not an arbitrary, rule-based following of laws so that it gets you somewhere else after you die. It's not your ticket into heaven or your ticket out of hell. It's something that has value here and now in our present life. And Jesus, out of this, speaks these words to Nicodemus in this verse that we've heard so often, it sometimes loses its impact. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. But Nicodemus, his life will continue on into all eternity. For God did not come, he didn't send his son Jesus to condemn the world, but rather to save the world through him. Jesus says to Nicodemus that this is what he needs that the religious life that he has been brought up in and continues to hold on to, Nicodemus, this has only gotten you so far. The new birth that Jesus has to offer is not another set of rules to live up to. It's not a set of principles to work towards. It's not a new system of morality that he has to follow. In fact, it is nothing that Nicodemus can attain on his own. Instead, it is made clear to him that the work, of being, um, the work of making a new birth possible has already been done for him and for the whole world. Nicodemus, God, has ushered in a new way to live. God has ushered a new way to follow, a new family to be a part of through his son, Jesus. And with that, the story of Nicodemus goes on pause. He utters John 3, 16. He says that God didn't come to condemn the world. And that's the end of Nicodemus' story for now. Jesus continues to go on in his work of teaching and healing and encountering people who are in need. Friends, Nicodemus comes at night to hear from Jesus, to ask his questions, to kind of kick the tires a little bit. And the next time we see him in the biblical story is when Jesus has been arrested. And he's waiting to be judged. And Nicodemus enters the courtroom and says, you know what, wait, 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 before you speak judgment, we need to be able to hear Jesus out. He comes publicly to Jesus' defense. The last time we hear about Nicodemus... It's after Jesus has been killed and Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are together preparing his body. Friends, something has shifted in Nicodemus. Something has shifted and it is far from a transaction. 
but it is a tender, life-giving, life-transforming relationship. It's interesting to see in the gospel writing, the message of the gospels is so cyclical. Jesus is explaining the kingdom of God and who the Messiah is and what being a follower of him looks like, what a life of love looks like. And he explains it to one person and then we see him encounter a next person like Nicodemus. A little bit later, we see him encounter the women at, woman at the well. Think, I am the living water, he tells her. He teaches about this over and over and over as he's trying to express to people what this grand idea now looks like. And then he dies and he is risen again and then the early church forms as they begin this evangelical move, as they express the gospel, the good news that is available to all people and everyone is invited into this good news. And if we fast forward for just a moment to the book of Galatians, we read a small letter to this church in Galatia and we see the same thing is happening again because the writer of this letter is Paul. And Paul, a former Pharisee, an expert in the religious law who through dramatic conversion is reborn into a life of faith and he writes these words to the church. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. See, what had been plaguing the church at this time was a group of Judaizers or Jewish people who were Christians, but they were stepping into the people that had converted to Christianity under Paul, and they were saying, here is the deal. Like, you can follow this Jesus guy, you can listen to Paul, but you're going to need to do some other things rather than just trust Jesus. You also need to have this outward sign of what has gone on eternally, which chiefly among them included circumcision. And so they were telling these new Christians, you need to be circumcised. And Paul was writing to the church and saying, no, this is not the gospel plus anything. It is just the gospel. This is what it's about. There is no outward mark that becomes your entry into the kingdom of God. The outward sign of a new birth of the spirit in you are these things that the spirit wants to produce in your life. This is the new circumcision. It is not a mark on your body, but it's something that is birthed out of the Spirit's work in your life. Friends, in this world, we live out our faith. The image of our faith system has so often been co-opted by a very negative message. Far too often, people that follow Jesus are called hypocrites. They are known for what they are against rather than what they are for. The caricature of what we often embody is one of judgment and abuse of power and pursuit of wealth and position and war and violence and friends. This is not our faith. This is where we should welcome these opportunities like Nicodemus to encounter Jesus and invite him to just dismantle the scaffolding to just pull it apart, the scaffolding of our religion and the scaffolding of our culture so that he can begin to build us back, to move us away from this mere transaction nature into a life of relationship through his spirit. 
Do you know how many times in the Bible it tells people, okay, like you're a Christian now, so just go into your room, you've accepted Jesus into your heart, read your Bible, pray and fast, and come out and tell us what you think. Zero many times. Faith is always walked out in community. It is always walked out arm in arm with our brothers and sisters in faith who are further along in the journey and those who are new in their faith and are just getting started. We are a spiritual family. And the message in our culture is we could either buy right into the cultural line that we are people of power and position and greed or we are people of mutual submission. People who care for the poor, who love our enemies, and who are moving forward in this walk of faith, leaving behind the transaction of religion. So maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, you know, I've been a Christian a long time, and this just, this just doesn't hit home for me. I would say be encouraged. Friends, we need you. We need you to model these things, to exemplify a life of faithfulness, to come alongside of people who are in the midst of just having their scaffolding taken apart so that they know it gets better. It gets better. Some of you might this morning be in the midst of a spiritual crisis right now. You have a question that you're asking that feels like, you know what, if I just push into that, your whole way of thinking might just fall apart. Maybe something has happened in your life that's radically changed the way you see the world and you're looking around and you're wondering if things will ever be the same. Maybe you just don't even get it. Things feel like that they have fallen apart and you're looking at the pieces and wondering if something can be made out of them and you'd like to try if you just weren't so lonely. Let me just encourage you and let me just challenge you with two things. The first is this. Find someone who you can trust that you can really just talk about and get honest about what's going on in your faith. And if I could just say one more thing about this, there have been times that I have needed to pay that person. And by this, I mean it has been a counselor or it has been a therapist that I've needed to get with in order to have a voice in my life that I could name my questions to and I could work through some things I've needed to look at. And that's okay. The second thing is this. Can you just carve out some time in your life? in one of those moments that you have that just quiets down and can you say, God, what do you want to say to me? And then just be still. Just take some time and actually listen. Don't just read another book or join another study thinking that will fix it. Really just listen to God. I'm really big on the fact that God is still speaking. He is still showing himself to us and he wants to meet with you, but we need to get actually practicing, listening to God's voice, understanding what it sounds like. And when you start practicing this, friends, his voice is real. (laughs) 
Or maybe you're a Christian this morning and you've bought into the cultural narrative of what Christianity is and you're holding on to a certain rigidity in your faith. And this morning, this encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus might just be a gentle rebuke to leave those transactions behind. To stop thinking about who's in and who's out, but enter into the relationship that comes through Jesus. Here's some homework for you this week. Just take this list, Galatians 5. Just take this list and invite God to show you one of the things that you can invest in this week. Take one of those words. So, for example, gentleness. And allow just the word gentleness to be on your mind. To be rolling around in your heart so that as you drive, shoot, right? (laughs) I had to start with the hardest one. As you drive, as you think about going back to school, as you relate with your neighbors, as you think about parenting adult children, how can I be gentle? Friends, does gentleness mark our lives? Can other people see gentleness in us? Friends, this is a great way to lean into the Spirit's work in our lives and what He desires to produce in us. What if... What if for all of us, brothers and sisters, whether you understand that level of spiritual family or not, what if we just said this is a gift that we do together to wrestle with God's word, to wrestle with the questions of our faith, and to be able to move forward in this journey of life together? Let's pray. Father God, as I talk about the questions of our faith and as we think about the person of Nicodemus, we recognize this morning that the questions of our faith are tender moments. They are tender moments, and we both need a God who is going to speak clearly to us, as well as one that comes alongside of us with gentleness. And so, Holy Spirit, into our questions, into these tender times, I pray that your spirit would be living and active among us. Father, would one of the marks of our church be a place that is safe for people's questions, for our wonderings about you, and that it is in these spaces where we find the richness and the joy and the company of getting to walk a life of faith together. In your name we pray. Amen.